Well, our Christmas series, The Wake, the, the promised king will come. And of course, we're reading the story, and, and they were people waiting for the king to come the first time, and we're on the other side, and we're waiting for our king to return. In fact, as we think about this idea of waiting, God has often asked his people to wait. You think of Abraham, he had to wait, and Sarah had to wait 25 years before they got their promised son, Isaac. Or you think of Joseph, right? Joseph gets kidnapped, he gets thrown in prison. He had to wait 14 years before he became a leader over the people for Israel in Egypt. It's amazing to think about it. Or you think about David, from the time that he was anointed to the time he ascended to the throne, it was 15 years of waiting. Or you think of in the Christmas story alone, Elizabeth and Zechariah, right? They had to wait almost a whole lifetime before God blessed them with children. Or you think of Simeon or the prophetess Anna in, in, in the Christmas story and what was happening. They were waiting and waiting for decades for God to fulfill his promise. And one of the things when we think about this area of waiting, one of the most important lessons in life is learning to wait. Let me say it this way. Waiting well shows emotional adjustment in life. Those that learn to wait well, whether you're young or whether you're middle-aged or whether you're older, right? Learning to wait well. But what we don't realize is often in the waiting, we're all trusting in something. We don't often think about it, but if you are waiting for your luggage at an airport, you're trusting that the luggage handlers will do their job and they won't lose your luggage, right? If you're a childless couple and you're waiting for a child, you're trusting sometimes in a doctor, you're trusting in technology. Everybody is trusting in something as they wait. Sometimes it's fate. Sometimes it's just good luck. Or sometimes it goes even a little deeper. But what's implicit is that in the waiting, there's a trust. You might see this a little bit in an illustration of trapeze artists, right? In, in the trapeze artist world, there is the flyer and there is the catcher. So the flyer leaves the platform and they are flying through the air, and at some point, she has to decide to let go of the trapeze. On the other side of it, there's the catcher, and she is waiting for the catcher. But what becomes important in this little artist's work is that the flyer never tries to catch the catcher. It's the catcher that catches the flyer. So when she releases the trapeze and she's suspended in the air, she's waiting and ultimately trusting for the catcher. There's an absolute trust that she will be caught. So the question this morning is, what are you trusting in as we wait for the king to return? What is it? that we find ourselves trusting in as we walk through life. Because all of us, without exception, are trusting 
in something. If you have your Bible with you this morning, if you have a device, if there's some way you to get the Word of God, I don't think you want to miss what we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 110. So if you open your Bible to about the middle, you're going to end up in the book of Psalms, Psalm 110. And if you're able to stand, could I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word? Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. Oh, Father, would you take a a complex psalm, a song that your people sang for centuries, would you bring a deeper understanding as we wait, as we wait for the promise that's rooted right here in your word. We pray, God, that you'd open our eyes, open our hearts to the truth. Let your spirit today Show us new things to your glory, God. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. You may grab a seat. Of course, as we read a psalm like this, this psalm gets quoted in the New Testament often. In fact, we see it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All of them quote 110 verse 1. So all of them are looking at what is going on there. So let's dive a little deeper into verse 1. So we don't miss it. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, right? So this Davidic king is called a Lord. He's called Lord. Now, in order to see this, verse 1, you need to see that the Lord at the beginning is all capitalized, right? Yahweh That's why it's all in capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So Yahweh says to my Lord, right, are you following me here? Sit at my right hand. So Lord, the second one, is not all capitals because it's the Hebrew word Adonai. So Yahweh says to my Adonai. So the question is, who is the my? Who is the my here? Well, David is writing the psalm, so naturally it's David is the my. But that raises a very interesting question. It it actually raises a paradox because as people were reading Psalm 110 through the centuries, David lived about 1,000 B.C. As he wrote this, he sang, Yahweh says to my Adonai. But wait a minute. David is the pinnacle of Israel's kings. He's the greatest of kings. And what David is subtly saying, or should we say not so subtly, is this one is my Adonai. Now, Adonai means a a ruler, 
a king, but when it's used so often, it's used of God, and here we're beginning to see, wait a minute, is David really talking about someone divine? Adonai is used for God all the time in the Old Testament. So all of a sudden, the readers a thousand years before Christ are reading this, and they're like, what is David saying? What is the hope? In fact, we could say it this way. This is one of the first clues in the Old Testament that the Messiah that was going to come, the promised king, would be divine. So Yahweh says to my, David's Lord, or my Adonai, you join me at my right hand. Well, let's look at how Jesus used this verse to teach us. So in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 46, let me just read it. It says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. So get the picture, right? The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, were asking some questions, and Jesus was asking questions of them. So Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my enemy, put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And notice what happens. Crickets. No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So what Jesus was doing is what he's asking you and me to do today. He's asking the Pharisees, would you reflect on the Messiah? Would you reflect on what God promised Would you think about in a deep way what God promised in the Old Testament about a coming king? And so they answered correctly, whose son is he? And says, well, David's son. They all knew that the Messiah was going to come out of the family line of David, that it would be a dynastic thing as we've talked about in the past, that someone in the family line, but then what happens, Jesus says, wait a minute, do you remember Psalm 110? There's a little bit of a paradox. How is it the greatest king in Israel's history then starts looking to someone greater than him? They couldn't fathom it, and so they all become Silent. How can David, notice it says, speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? So David, when he wrote Psalm 110, and I've tried to make this a point as we've looked through the series, is that if you read your Bible as if it's not a supernatural book, you're going to come up empty. But if you read it and you begin to see that it's God speaking and that it's the Spirit of God moving through people, writing the very thoughts of God so that it's bringing about spiritual truth, it changes everything about how you're reading it. And so Jesus is reading it and and he's pointing to them, how is it then that David could say this? By the power of the Spirit. He calls him 
Adonai. He calls this figure, let's call it, this Messiah figure, the Lord, a ruler, the supreme commander over all the nations, as we just read, right? And so G- David is, is, or Jesus is laying this out about David. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Adonai, if then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? That would be so odd for a father to call his son Lord. In a patriarchal society, in a culture like that, where the father is the one, how is it that the father then would call the son Lord? We begin to see is that this Davidic king is Adonai. He's divine. And Jesus wanted them to think about this because it's written a thousand years before he came. It gave them a thousand years to reflect on it. And God is asking you and me to reflect on who is this Jesus that we worship? That he truly is the God-man. He's Adonai. Well, King David acknowledges this Messiah figure in Psalm 110 as someone with the authority of God. Because that's what we begin to see next, is that the Davidic king sits at the right hand of God. The Davidic king sits at the right hand of God. That's where this all starts to move, right? It says, Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand. That was the position of power. That was the position of authority. This was someone that was so connected to God that he spoke for God. He was with God. He was close to God. He was one with God. So do you remember in the, the trial of Jesus, Caiaphas, the high priest, says to Jesus, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus answers, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father. Well, that was code. They knew Psalm 110. They had already heard Jesus preach on this. They had already heard him teaching. And so here he is just quoting this again. And of course, he's coming on the clouds of heaven, referring to Daniel chapter 7. So there's this place of power, this place of ruling, this place of authority. They're close to the presence of God. This is the Davidic king that we're worshiping. There's this shared rule and authority. Well, Psalm 110 in verses 5 and six show us even further a little bit more the lord is at your right hand verse five adonai is at your right hand and look what it says he will crush kings on the day of his wrath now of course there's coming a day when god is going to send his son to this earth he's going to return as king and his judge and he is going to crush the nations of the world, anybody that stands opposed to Adonai 
will be set aside. That's where he's going in Psalm 110. He will judge the nations, right? I say Jesus is coming back two dominant ways. He's coming back as king. He's coming back as a ruler. He's coming back as the supreme one. And nobody's going to miss it. He's not going to slip into a stable this time. He's not going to be lying in a manger. He's not going to be wrapped in swaddling clothes. He's coming back with his regal authority robes on him. Him, and nobody is going to miss it. It doesn't matter whether you deny him. It doesn't matter whether you shake your fist at him. And it doesn't matter whether you honor him as king. Everyone will bow the knee and see him as king. So it's always wise to make that decision to bow now because it'll be too late then. Because he's coming back and he's coming back to judge the nations it says, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. You notice he's talking nations, all the nations, and he's talking about a universal reign. There's not some small parochial king here. This is a king that rules over the whole world. It is universal. So when I say the Davidic king sits at God's right hand, I'm saying this Messiah is sitting at God's right hand ruling over the whole earth. Now you and I look at it now and we say, I don't see him ruling like that now. And you know what? That's exactly right, but that doesn't mean that the time's not coming that he won't. He is building more and more of his ruling power through his people as we live out the way we should. So the Pharisees, even here, could not escape what was going on in this Davidic psalm. That's why they were so silent. They saw that this figure, this one that would be Adonai, was going to rule over the nations. But let's hit the third point. The Davidic king is the perfect priest. I don't want you to miss this, so we're going to back up just a little bit to verse 4. In verse 4, we begin to see that there is this priestly one, right? It says in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, as we look at that, as we think about that, right, there's some priestly roles that we probably should take a moment to think about. Because a lot of times when we think about priests, we think about only serving in the temple. We think about only certain aspects of it. But let me give you a few things that are tied to the priestly roles. First is that the priests were mediators between God and people. A mediator, a representative, that is the priest represented God, trying to tell the people what God wanted, how to live with him, how to enjoy God, how to walk with him. At the same time, the priest represented the people. So the priests were people that would pray, they would offer sacrifices, they stood in between God and people. And so what you're going to see is that Jesus now becomes the perfect priest. He stands between us and God. And he's representing God to us, 
right? He's the exact representation of God. At the same time, he's representing us to God. That's why there's no condemnation. That's why when God looks at you, if you've trusted Christ, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He looks and Jesus is saying, that's my daughter. She's got my righteousness. It's been imputed to her. She carries all of my righteousness. If you're a son of Jesus, right? If you have turned to him and you're a son of God, right? What God, Jesus is saying is, that's my son. He has my righteousness. That's what mediators do. So they give blessings over people, and they clarify the will of God as they represent it. But secondly, they serve in the temple, right? It's not only that they're mediators, but they are serving in the temple. They run the temple. They do the sacrifices. They help the people understand how to enter into the temple area, how to purify themselves, how to set themselves apart so that they can be pleasing God. So there is this service in the temple. Thirdly, and people miss this, is that the priests were God's appointed teachers. They were God's appointed teachers. They held the scrolls. scrolls. They kept the library of the Torah. They understood it. They would teach it. When things needed clarification, it was the priest that did those kind of things. So let's take something really simple like the fifth commandment. You all know what the fifth commandment is. Keep the Sabbath day holy, right? And so what God is asking us to do by keeping the Sabbath day holy in the fifth commandment is he's saying cease from work. And so all of a sudden, Jews would be asking, well, wait, what kind of work can we do? Can we start a fire to cook? What if an animal, and you remember some of the stories in the New Testament, what if an animal falls into a well? Can you get that animal out? Is that work? Well, it would be the priest's job to clarify what the Torah meant. And of course, they went too far because they started establishing laws upon laws upon laws upon laws. And that's what Jesus is saying, is you are heaping burdens upon the people. But it was because the priests were the appointed teachers. We see that the priests would often read the Torah, read the Old Testament, to the people so that they could hear it and know it because a lot of them were not literate. So the priest played that kind of role. Well, guess what? Jesus was that kind of teacher. Jesus was the one bringing the truth of the word, right? So when you think of the Sermon on the Mount, who taught that? That was Jesus. He was preaching. He was, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you need to see him as a sage, as a wise teacher, as he's trying to bring things deeper out about the law. So what does he say? Jesus says all kinds of things in the Sermon on the Mount, but things like, hey, if you're angry in your heart, you've already committed murder. See what Jesus is doing is he's teaching the truth about the law. He's talking about what? The, the sixth commandment, thou shall not murder. And Jesus then brings it deeper as a good priest would. Over and over we see Jesus doing that. If you lust after a person in your heart, you're committing adultery. Notice what Jesus is doing as he's teaching the seventh commandment. Thou shall not commit adultery. He keeps bringing us deeper and deeper in it because Jesus was the perfect teacher. That's why they marveled at his teaching. Remember when he was 12 years old and he was in the temple and they were listening to him teach and they were just stunned at his wisdom at the use of the Bible. Well, the last one is priests also have judicial responsibilities. 
judicial, right? They, they've got to clarify issues. They would stand in the way of the people and help them if there was something that was not settled and they needed someone to, to help them understand how to apply the law and, and live it out. There would be these priests that would come in helping with disputes in the community. And in the New Testament, we find how they had done that a number of times as well. So what we see are these priestly roles But what we now see is that Jesus in every way fulfilled them perfectly. Let's look for a moment at Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, right? Or first, first Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, it says, There is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. There is one mediator, right? So the priest, you know this, right? The Levitical priest, they would serve for about 25 years from age 25 to age 50. They were forced into retirement at age 50. It was dynastic, so families would pass it on, but they passed on. They died, and Jesus becomes the perfect one, the perfect mediator, because he never passes on. He never goes away. He lives forever. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, right? He's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Everybody is trusting in something. So as we wait, are we going to trust in this high priest, this Messiah, this Adonai, this one who is Lord? Because he knows everything. So whether you're waiting for your luggage, are you ultimately going to trust that God's going to take care of you or are you going to trust in baggage handlers? If you're waiting for a child, are you going to trust in doctors and medical technology or are you going to trust in God, the author of life, right? You just go through every situation that we're waiting in and you can see that ultimately we want to trust in this perfect high priest, this one who's a mediator between us and God. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 11, it says this, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, right, and it couldn't, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still a a need for another priest to come, one on the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? The answer, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind This Jesus is a priest forever because the oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. So the Mosaic covenant was a good covenant. It just wasn't complete. If you brought your animal sacrifice, guess what? You had to bring it again because you needed another sacrifice. Even the Day of Atonement, there would be another Day of Atonement where another sacrifice. But with Jesus, he's the perfect one. He sacrificed himself, and it is the perfect, perfect sacrifice. And so he's the priest forever. He's become the guarantor of a better covenant. Of course, the new covenant is the better covenant. It's superior in every way. So let me just come back to the question. What are you trusting in? As we wait, and waiting is hard, it's a mark of emotional maturity. Some of us are going through some really hard things. Some of us are waiting for a job to come through. 
Some of us are waiting for a marriage. Some of us are waiting for a friendship to shake out. Some of us are waiting for a relationship. Some of us are waiting for our children to come to the Lord. Some of us are waiting for our spouse and our marriage to get fixed, right? Ultimately then, what are you trusting in? Are you going to trust in a counselor? Are you going to trust in a psychologist? Are you going to trust in what? All of us are trusting in something. And what this series is about is waiting and trusting in something bigger, more transcendent than anything in this world. And this morning we're seeing we need that perfect priest, someone who transcends everything in this world. There is no one like Jesus, this Messiah. He is perfect in every every way. He is, we use the word holy because he is so set apart from any Davidic king. They could never have imagined it. And here God in his creativity brings about Mary and Joseph and then he brings about in the adoptive line of Judah this one Jesus, the God-man. He is truly a holy high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Let me just say a little bit about Melchizedek and then close. Melchizedek ends up in Genesis chapter 14. He was a king warrior. He was a king priest over Jerusalem. It was Abraham who paid tithes to this king. Hebrews writer says that he has no genealogy. It doesn't mean that he didn't have one. It's just they didn't know one. And Jesus becomes a priest in the order of Melchizedek, and he is one forever. Why? Because it's not national, it's not dynastic, meaning Levitical priesthood. It is by the oath of God. God declares Jesus the perfect priest king for you and for me. Father, thank you for the truth of your word, the power of your word. God, we can hardly fathom that a thousand years before Jesus came, you were writing about this divine one where David would begin to see that he had a Lord that would be over his life, that would be the king, that would be forever. And of course, we now know it's the divine man, the God-man, who is our perfect priest. And it's in his name we pray because he represents us to God. He alone is holy. Amen.